and welcome back or welcome to another episode of On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, fellow coach, John Marcus. John, how's everything going? Super fantastic. Awesome, because we're back, baby, giving people part two of what they want. Mm, It's going to be tasty today. That is right. If you haven't listened to part one, go ahead and check that episode out. But part two is going to be something else. Before we dive into it, a word from our sponsor, the High Performance West Academy of Scholarship Program. John, we've been hyping this thing up, but I think deservedly so. What is it? It is your one-stop shop for everything educational about being a coach. We cover training. We cover psychology. We cover the science. We cover the history training programs of, I don't know, probably a 100 elite or professional-level athletes. We've got uh, just Canova, Renato Canova's training. I think we've got 60-plus training programs and explanations from the man himself. Oh, it's the best resource on Canova training on the planet besides Canova himself. 100%. (laughs) That is right. 100%. Like, there's nothing more in depth. Like, seriously, go, look, search (laughs) all the message boards you want. But we got it. The best one-stop Canova shop. So, and you know, the great thing I love about our program, and I know I'm biased, but we present everything. So, we are not a distance. We are not a mid-distance. We are not biased by the speed or the long mileage, high mileage program. We present it all. So, we do that because we know that no one has the answer. So, if you're looking for how to do intervals five days a week, we got you covered with Igloy and more interval training. If you want to know how to run 100 plus miles a week, we got you covered on that. We got you covered on everything because our goal for education, much like in the real world, is we present everything, right? We don't just present you our one side. We say, here's everything. Here's our analysis. Learn, do what you want. And in that spirit, here's a fun little tidbit. I was reading about uh, Percy Sarity and her brilliant training just before we hopped on this podcast. Here's a fun little nugget about them. They were far, far ahead of their time in the 1950s and 60s about the adequate diet and sleep regime for athletes. Um, so per, uh, Sarity is quoted here as saying, make sure the athlete must make sure they get eight hours of sleep at night, preferably nine hours. There is no room for late hours in the life of a champion. And then also, uh, aside, one of the core principles of nutrition was to drink milk with every meal. (laughs) (laughs) I just sometimes I really love going back and looking at these like historical coaches, ideas and thoughts about nutrition because it's all over the board. It's great. (laughs) Yeah. You know what the great thing about it is it is very straightforward. Yes. You know, yeah, another like, part of it for uh, Sarity was uh, to um, never eat between meals. So, three square meals a day, drink milk. That's very 1950s, 60 food pyramid yep. type logic, very reductionist, very o- overly simplified. And I think that's sometimes the thing Steve and I always try to fight, right, is like we love simplified logic. Make it simple, make it easy, simple, sticky. But a lot of times, because of that, we get oversimplification, which makes things that are hard and complex and chaotic and messy that have a lot of nuance. And we try to package them as straightforward in this kind of binary thinking, which tends to get us more trouble than actually helps us, right? Yep, 100%. I would agree with that. I mean, I think it it's, uh, yeah, it's a major issue. So, speaking speaking of that... Let's transition into this week's topic, which is a part two. Man, we're having a series now. We're a big-time podcast. Um, endurance development, but this time, part two, we're going to focus on the middle-distance events. So, walking you through how we develop middle-distance athletes. What does the training look like? What do we consider? Like, what are our decision points for working with ind- individuals and getting them to their goals or what have you? So, we're going to try and just lay it out on the table. And this is, again, one of these 
going in in deep. So, uh, you know, prepare your pen or, or notebook for some notes and, and let's dive in. Okay. And I'm going to start off with who I consider to be one of the top three, if we want to call them that, gurus or paradigm shifting thinkers of middle distance coaching. Who we did just mention is Percy Sarity. The other person I'd throw in there is Igloy, without a doubt. And Steve, who would you round out in that top three of Sarity, Igloy, and for middle distance coaching? Oh, man. That's tough. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's really... I'm just curious. I, give you my t- I can give you my third, but I'm curious about yours. <sighs> it's very, very tough. You know, I think with mid-distance coaching, I mean, the, one of the biggest influences in terms of changing the paradigm of the coaching was, without a doubt, Peter Coe. Mm-hmm. Because his work was, whether you agree with it or not, was literally a paradigm shift in terms of uh, where it took, especially in the U.S. and the U.K., um, took their training in a different direction. Now, a little bit of it, it took us too far in one direction, I think, but it certainly like changed the uh, changed the training landscape, much like Lydiard changed the training landscape um, in the endurance direction. Mm-hmm. That's 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 really fair. I'm I was actually going to say Vinlanana was going to be my other choice for middle distance coaching, which we'll get into later in this podcast. But going back to Sarity, here is a great, great Sarity quote about the middle distance training um, methods or philosophy that he developed in his lifetime that spurred Herb Elliott to a gold medal and world record in the 1500. Sarity is quoted as saying, condition yourself over at least three years, become really strong all over, train three days a week to exhaustion, run or rest, run easy or rest on the other days. Run a lot of the speed you would at race pace, say 60 seconds a quarter or even a little faster. Run 200s, 400s, even 800s, an occasional three-quarter mile effort. Get the organism drilled to running at these speeds and flat out until exhaustion. Reduce the recovery times to a mere nothing as the intense training goes on. Run a lot of over-distance work for continuity of effort and the time's will come end quote brilliant yeah (laughs) i mean all right this episode is now we're done that's it guys peace out all done um remind our listeners what what book that comes from uh this book comes from how they train the second edition uh volume one middle distances edited but edited by none other than pred wilt you know, Wilt is another one, although a coach of Buddy Edelin, the marathoner, and others mm-hmm. who fundamentally changed. You know, one one day, and this is a random tangent, but one day we need to do a podcast on those who change training. Right? Oh, shit, yeah, dude. Yeah. Because, because there are those who influence, but then there are the fundamental changes. And I think Wilt was one and you have mm-hmm. Lydiard, you have Bowerman, you have, you know, these mm-hmm. others where it's just these, this, these points in time where training yeah, just B-Hill. shifts. Yep. Behill, big paradigm shift. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. All right. I'm going to make it. Yeah, we don't give that. enough love to Hill on this podcast. I think that's another thing we need to, we do, you know, and I, for only six months, but I trained under Marco Ochoa, who was one of, um, Joe V. Hill's um, mm-hmm. early successes on the professional field, um, a very successful marathoner. And it was it was fascinating, fascinating to dive into his program and train the V. Hill way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Back, back <laughs> on topic. So okay. Gonna- we'll, 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 we'll continue it even though Sarity just nailed, nailed <clears throat> put the nail in the coffin early on. <laughs> yes. Um, let's unpack that quote. Let's do that. Okay. Let's do that. Yeah. So first off, condition yourself over at least three years, become really strong all over. Let's just unpack that. So, you know, I think here is, it's this, it's pretty obvious. It's the short term versus long term gain. Mm -hmm. But like, I think Sarity realized that 
in order to put the pieces in place to be at a competitive level, you had to take the time to do so. And in the middle distance events, especially, that matters a ton because you have to have not only the, um, let's say, the endurance foundation get strong, um, you have to have the physical strength, and you have to have the other side of the co- coin, the speed side foundation. Now, a lot of people mistake and think like, oh, speed, it comes naturally, it's in tune, like we just either got it or you don't, and if you got it, great, then we'll build off of it. But that's that's a misnomer. It's not, not true. If it was, sprinters wouldn't train for years to get mm-hmm. where they would. Yeah, they just show up naturally talented and because they're quote-unquote raw. Exactly. So... You know, that's how I unpack that first part of the code is that it takes time to develop. We need to put the pieces in play before we can get to the um, the fun stuff, we'll call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, conditioning yourself over three years. Here's the thing. You know, I think Serity, more so than everyone, has a large amount of documentation demonstrating his implicit understanding that sport the athlete even for running is a holistic unitary organism recently we've gotten i think a little too far away from that holistic understanding and there's this reductionist logic where it's so physiological based right because we have people who have degrees in exercise phys so people are doing studies in the lab on VO2 max, oxygen uptake capacity, uh, you know, different variants of running economy. And so there's a lot of literature in a lot of people who have had success with focusing primarily on energy system development and physiological upgrades that they're saying this is the golden ticket. Um, But I think it misses the point because Sarity also in this – in this little uh, uh, article here in how they trained is, you know, credited as being a weight enthusiast who advocates lifting very heavy one and a half to two times body weight and deadlift for his runners. So even early on, he understood there was a motor development um, part to training that was very, very critical and paramount to success. And so what we've done, I think, sometimes in modern distance running is we've swung so far over to the exercise phys side that we've neglected other things like the motor development or nervous system development side. And that's why, you know, again, when you look at max velocity running ability, athletes with the highest overall max velocity, um, no matter what distance they run, the person or people with the higher end top speed and we're talking max velocity over 30, 60 meters, typically can run at more sustained speeds if well-conditioned than someone who's very economical but has a lower max velocity speed. And so this is where the nervous system comes into play, and that Herb Elliott and Sarity, either through trial and error, through an implicit, just subtle understanding, happened upon through their training because it was so holistic in nature. And if you notice in the quote too, he doesn't advocate for just only doing a lot of speed. He says, that's kind of the foundation of it. That's kind of something that we should be really focused on. But there's also advocation for um, a lot of over distance work uh, as well. So this is where, again, someone might take a tweet or a quote, Steve or I say out of context and think we're only specifically this type of person or this type of coach. But again, we we lose the nuance and importance of the meaning of what it means to holistically condition an athlete if we're just focused on upgrading this one variable, whether it's miles you run per week, distance of your long run, pace for your lactic or uh, lactic threshold um, runs. that's the job of the coach is we have to be able to integrate a lot of different ingredients and understand the key performance variables that are limiting the athlete and then upgrade them on the appropriate timeline thusly. Thankfully, in normal circumstances, in normal times, most high school coaches, most college coaches have that three to four year window with an athlete. And sure enough, right, 
if they are disciplined and if they are, as they say, living the life of a champion, in that third, fourth year, fifth year, that's when that athlete really starts to shine under that training program. It's very rare, right, Steve? And you can speak to this as well as a college coach for an athlete in a developmental pathway to shine freshman year or sophomore year. It usually starts to sparkle junior year, senior year, and if they do, redshirt um, senior year. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it, it takes time. Like development takes time. And I think that yeah, is and there's one just of, different timelines for development yeah. pathways, and and sometimes like <laughs> you know we like to think we can control it, but we can't really. We just have to like let it guide them along the path and let it come. You know, sometimes we can influence it. We can influence it, but we can't control. Yeah. It, and that's a, a subtle tightrope to walk. Right, exactly. And I think that's the key there is that distinction is you're influencing, but you're not controlling. So it's like you have to see where the what what the athlete's uh, psychological and physio- physiological development allows you to do. And then you're kind of nudging it in different directions to keep it on the right path. Um, so you get to a place where you need to be. And I think as a coach, what I tend to do is I tend to sit down at the beginning of that development, and that's, since we're talking mid-distance, and I, and I, and I ask, what, what qualities do they have? What potential do they likely have? And then I test those assumptions over the years. And I'll give you one example. An athlete who I inherited when he was a sophomore, my, my first year at Houston, uh, Drayvon Anderson Kappa who came into the program as a, he got recruited because in, in the 4A division, which was the second highest division, he was top 10 at the state meet over 5K and cross country. Okay, so that's why he got recruited. I think he ran the 800, you know, in, in track a little bit, but ran maybe 156, 155, something like that. His freshman year under a different coach, he started, he did well at the conference meet in the 1500, okay? So a little different from Cross. And then over his career with me, he, we moved him down to where he was, you know, made the regional meet, I think, um, three times in the 800 and was a three-time conference champ in the 800 and anchored our 4 by 4 splitting 46s outdoors. Now, how do you go from 5K Cross down to 4 by 4 slash 800? Well, if you looked at his development, he ran cross every year, but then we started testing his other abilities. And as as his abilities started to shine, I shifted them down and down and started to amplify or try and say, you know what? This guy's got a lot of speed and power. We're going to emphasize this and see where it goes, you know? And it's like, the athlete is showing you their skills. And then as you, as a coach are recognizing, you're saying, wait a minute. Like I know he's training for the 1500 and that's what he did in the past 1500 and cross, but he's showing this, that this ability is there and it might be just from noticing sprint up a hill, right? This ability and this power is here. We need to, we need to emphasize this and see what happens. And then this changes, right? And then your direction changes a little bit more. And I think that's why it's really important as we emphasize this several year um, development pathway that you're, you're testing your assumptions, right? You're making sure you're headed in the right direction. And sometimes that direction is completely different than what you thought at the very beginning. But the only way you find that out is to test, to see. Mm-hmm. And you kind of also have to know what you're looking for in terms of not just what a time is recorded on a stopwatch, but again, input the inputs of all the conditioning and training variables that you're subjecting the organism to. You know, I think it's really a really simplified model, an oversimplified model, to just think for middle-distance athletes in terms of running work. That is the sport-specific work uh, that you must do, but it's not the only work that needs to be done because upgrades to the motor um, system, the nervous system, even upgrades to 
So like lactic threshold ability, running economy ability, velocity at VO2 max ability, those can happen through other modalities that are not just running, you know, intervals or hills or um, sprints or things like that. I mean, so what I do is I always start with a really diverse um, list of ingredients and subject the middle distance athlete to that from day one. So day one, we're doing some types of plyos. From day two, we're then, uh, and you know, in day two, we're getting in the weight room um, and doing uh, heavy lifts, like exactly like Sarity advocated. Because the thing we have to know is if, uh, and this is a good example, like say Daniel Herrera, before all the shutdowns happened and no real season of 2020 happened, we were going into it preparing for Olympic Games and a defining limiting factor for him was maximum velocity, maximum speed, and then um, economy at that top end speed or what we, you know, race speed. And we said one key thing that influenced that was his ability to deadlift and trap bar deadlift. And so he got his trap bar deadlift up to 375 pounds, right? That sounds like a lot of pounds <laughs> because the thing is though, he didn't get big and bulky. And that's the thing like a lot of coaches, oh, if you lift heavy, like Sarity, you know, had advocated, you're going to get big and bulky. No, the way the nervous system works is if you're doing three, you know, two to four sets of three to five reps with a, a good amount of rest in between, you are upgrading significantly the nervous system's power expression ability and familiarity. And so you can do more weight. Um, but the most important thing is you have to lay the foundation with moving well. And I think that's the thing we, we always kind of miss the plot on in middle distance running, especially is the goal is move well. And then after that, you can move more and then you can also move faster. But if you don't fundamentally have, you don't move well in terms of efficiency or a kind of biomechanically virtuous cycle in the cyclical closed skill event that's called distance running or middle distance running, at a certain point, you're going to be, reach a movement ceiling and limitation because you can't load any more velocity. You can't load any more volume on that movement pattern. So Sarity also was a really big person on how to move. Bowerman was too. If you notice a lot of really good middle distance coaches, Peter Coe, um, Rasco, uh, even Vin, like they spent a lot of time early on in an athlete's development with them focusing on more virtuous mechanics and movement patterns and understanding there is fundamentally a more refined way to move and a less refined way to move. And the way I like to frame it is this, right? A, a kid, a little child um, will just take a piece of pen or crayon on a piece of paper and just start making lines. And that's art. And you hang it up on the wall because initially the kid is just figuring out how to move the crayon on the piece of paper to make a mark. But it's not, there's really no um, uh, sophistication to it at all. There, there's no uh, refinement. There's no plan. There's just, we're just going to go and make it happen. And so we all are blessed with like kind of this inherent, innate, gross motor learning capacity. And we all can like walk without necessarily being taught. Um, you know, we can all pick up speech. But the refinement comes through exposure and education uh, and deliberate practice at a higher level, right? So what makes a kid who's scribbling, you know, crayon on a piece of paper into a Picasso and an innovative thinker? Well, it's a discipline to paint a certain style to mimic that and then really um, master that, that conventional style of painting or artistry that then allows a Picasso to then go out and create cubism or go more in an abstract route because he's all a Picasso type person has already been infused with the fundamentals, the, the core requirements. It's the same thing in movement, right? We all kind of have a gross idea about how to walk and how to run, but what happens is, what happens is over time, if we don't create upgrades to that, then what we're going to do is we're just going to ref, um, further and further and further 
reinforce that movement pattern that has an inherent movement ceiling. And with that ceiling, you can only run so far, run so fast before you get an overuse injury, um, before you get some type of impediment to being able to express more power and speed. So that's why all this types of stuff, this kind of really diverse in, um, environment and movement environment, that's plyometrics, weightlifting, sprinting, um, speed work, which I define speed work as anything from 10K pace down to 800 meter pace, or I mean 400 meter pace, that general speed work is really vital. And you see Sarity emphasize the same thing, right? Run three times a week at the speed at which you would race or faster. <laughs> three, not, not two, like is the classic paradigm, but three, and then, you know, do it to exhaustion, right? And, you know, the stoicism of doing to exhaustion viewed through Stephen I's contemporary lens now saying, well, that's pretty excessive. But then he also on the flip side advocates then in the, on the other days, either rest or do very easy running to allow for recovery from those exhaustive efforts to happen. And you know who that sounds a lot like to me, Rasco. It does. It, it, it does. It, I mean, you, you can testify. You lived, you lived through the Rasco years, Steve. So <laughs> Yes, I did. I survived the Rasco years. Because um, remember, Alan's what, 20, 20 times 400 meter workout, right? Where he does 20 yeah. times a quarter and blasts the last one at 50. What do you do the very next day? Rest. Yes. Recover. Exhaustive yep. effort. Rest. Nothing. Off day. Yes, uh, very much so. Yeah, it's it. You know what I hear you saying in all of that, which I think is important to, you know, maybe sum up a little bit is middle distances, especially is unlike let's say a marathon where we're not suggesting you do, but you have all these tools and you can get away with not sharpening all of them or not utilizing all of them. Now you might not reach your best potential, right? But you can be pretty darn good if I leave this random you know, screwdriver over in the corner and just don't touch it for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the middle distance events are, are, you can't get away with that, okay? You'll get exposed. You will get if, exposed. If you neglect your tools and your toolbox and don't use them and don't figure out how to use them, then you will get exposed. You're not going to run to your potential. You're not going to be what you can. So, you know, I think even more so than in the distance events where a lot of times it's very popular to talk about, hey, we need several years of foundation of endurance work before you can get there, which is important. But in the middle distance events, I think it's even more so of, hey, we've got to set the foundation, set the stage so that as you develop as an athlete, your toolbox increases or your ability to use all those tools increases. So that means laying the foundation with movement, laying the foundation with pure speed, laying the foundation with um, running cross or some sort of endurance work um, to be able to handle things, right? Um, layer Then you layer on that foundation. You know, even with when I've gotten college athletes out of high school who were, let's say, speed-orientated, 800 runners. I still have them run cross country. It might be a meet or two. I still have them get their long run up to a decent level. That decent level could be seven miles. It could be 10 miles. It just depends. But we, uh, I do that in order to lay that foundation because I know that gives us them this endurance capacity which they're going to use and that will eventually convert into something a little more specific. And at the same time, you have to lay your foundation by doing things like sprinting and uh, pure speed and all that stuff, plus some mechanics work, as we mentioned, so that we can build off of that stuff or create speed endurance off of that stuff. So I think there it's it's even more important in the middle distance events to lay the foundation and lay it a very wide foundation so that you give your athletes the skill set to be able to succeed. I think I'd advocate it's just as important in distance running. Here to me is the biggest disservice classical periodization and the Lydiard model have done to running coaching 
is they create a reductionist emphasizing one quality at a time for a long block. When the reality is, it's multifactorial. So holistic training or a wide foundation or wide fundamental to me is multifactorial. So you're working on all elements and all qualities concurrently throughout the year. However, what you see kind of with acerity, you know, and we read this quote here is get the organism drilled to running at race speeds and flat out until exhaustion. Then reduced recovery times to a mere nothing as the intensive training goes on. That is multifactorial. So you're working on the biomotor ability to run at and create efficiency at the planned race speeds. But you're also working on the aerobic system, right? By reducing the recovery times needed between bouts at those speeds. And I think this is where we have this misconception where if we we need to focus on endurance and the only way to focus on endurance is to run base miles at moderate to easy intensities to get the athlete ready for speed work. Here's what Vin Lanana did the after after the NCAA track season, two week rest period, second day back running, there his athletes are doing six times 150, the second day back from a break to prepare for cross country, right? And because what Vin understood was it's multifactorial. You have to work on all qualities concurrently, but emphasize certain ones at other times, right? He was not a huge long run guy. Um, his long runs, and he was not a huge mileage guy. He believed in, and still does, um, Vin, in quality, in getting the athlete like um, Sarity here to get drilled into running in those speeds. Now, a lot of times we think, oh, man, that's going to be like these long, crazy workouts. Well, you want intervals every single day? Well, Igloy did intervals every single day but they weren't always hard intervals, right? Some of the intervals were like more tempo runs or moderate efforts because it was 100 meters at 10K pace, 100 meters at, you know, kind of easy or marathon pace, right? So I think it's just we have to expand our horizons and um, understanding and kind of break away from these really rigid, rudimentary, but highly seductive um, binary models where it's, one thing at a time for one period at a time. And it, it's just like, it's like junk food, man. It, it feels good. It makes sense because it's so simple. But ultimately, I'd argue it's really ineffective because you're inherently limiting the development in the short term and long term by neglecting speed, right? Because one of the big things that you'd advocate is like, there's no loss of speed if you just do aerobic stuff for six months. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd have to argue against that because we know now from a lot of motor um, and nervous system science that if you don't practice a skill, yeah, you don't, it's kind of like riding a bike. You don't fundamentally lose it, but you don't sharpen it. And so what happens is there's a lot more noise in the signaling um, and there's a lot more variance in the movement pattern. And so it doesn't become as refined, right? If you're going to practice the piano or the violin, you practice a lot. So that movement's really refined without a high degree of movement variance. And I would argue that that's one of the modern and in, modern innovations of um, of training theory or paradigms. Maybe not innovations, but one of the things we've accepted more so now is the traditional classic was a a traditional periodization where it's block. It's like one block of this, one block of this. A little bit integrated as we've talked. Like literally did more integration than it comes across. But it wasn't. And now you get today's world. For example, if you look at Renato Canova's training or whoever's been, um, it's much more integrated where it's all working on all things at all times, just changing the emphasis. And I think that has um, helped a lot in the middle distance area to maintain these things. Because as I said, um, in the endurance events, you can get away with out sharpening something for a while and then throwing a bunch at it and sharpening it up. So if you look at classic Lydiard, what was it? It was long period, very long period of endurance focus, then a period of 
entirely hill focused and old mm-hmm. linear. The bounding, yep. yep. Bounding is the hills. Yeah. But basically five days a week. Yeah. Of, no, it was it was yeah. And it was, that and, was what you're doing. And then what was it? Five days a week of intervals after that, no, essentially. Six days a week, yeah. Steve. Yeah. Six. And because so, it'd be five days a week of intervals and then a race or time trial. Yeah. And then a one one then once once a week so, long run. Like that was the the analogy there. As we spend one time, one, you know, we spend a lot of time sharpening one tool. We let the other dull, degrade, whatever. And then we go, oh, crap. Like, we got to get this one in top shape. So we're going to spend a lot of time on this, right? And hope that the tool we spent six months on building doesn't fade that much because we're going to, we're going to, you know, once a week, we're going to go back to that uh, long endurance tool and like make sure it's sharp, right? And the way I'd argue that modern training has changed is that now we might still emphasize one of those, but we're still checking on all these other tools in the toolbox at the same time. And I think from a a middle distance standpoint, that has made a, a big difference on um, on range of athletes and the ability to um, stay sharp, stay fit, race at a high level. Uh, for a, a prolonged period of time. And this is where like the Bonnerchuk uh, philosophy comes in. And you actually see this with Rasko and, and Webb in 2007. So what Bonnerchuk's uh, philosophy was, was essentially subjecting, the, he took the super compensation cycle that we tend to think about in a more microscopic view or more day-to-day view. And he just uh, stepped back and became more panoramic with it and said, okay, it's actually over the course of a training block that the supercompensation cycle happens. So the dip is actually probably two to four weeks that you're in this like loaded fatigue dip stage. And then the body starts to respond because you're subjecting it to a familiar similar stimulus over and over and over again. And Bonner check it was the same workout twice a day, every day, six days a week with one rest day in the, in the throws. But the concept was you got to a peak and instead of backing off during a peak fitness period, you exploited that by doing more racing and or higher, harder training to then elevate that peak or elevate that baseline so that when you went back into a long compensation or a long training block, that supercompensation cycle on the revisit or the rebound would be elevated and so on and so forth, time after time after time. So Bonnerchuk's concept was why not have seven to 10 peaks in a year versus put all your money in one big peak because we know that when an athlete's in peak condition, they get they recover faster, they're able to express higher velocity of output, they're able to do better training. So why not, from a macro point of view over a year, create it so we have a more gross number of high quality training periods or training workouts rather than just put all our eggs in this one focused basket called championship time of year. And again, this is where you see Lydiard and classical periodization align. It was this long preparation of a year and Lydiard was super focused on being ready on the championship day. You target the championship day and work back from there. It sounds very good. It sounds very reductionist. But it's just, it's not a complete meal. And to actually uh, follow up on this, here is a quote from Lydiard about nutrition himself, since I already gave a charity one. Um, Eat, here's a quote, quote, eat good solid meals of fresh meat, eggs, and sweets. But be sparing and uh, be sparing with fruits and vegetables. And of course, at your own risk, eat fats, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just not a complete meal is what I'm trying to get at here. So yeah, fresh meat, eggs, and sweets, those are things we like because they're very tasty. Fruits and vegetables and fats are important. We can't completely neglect it. So you kind of see e- even in my argument here is in Lydia's logic, somewhat of a reductionist binary this or that mentality versus understanding we need a complete meal. The main focus necessarily shouldn't be fruit or vegetables. Like the main focus needs to be your meat, your carbohydrates, but also there needs to be fruits and vegetables on the plate as well, or it's just not totally complete. And I think that's what Steve and I are trying to 
suss out and get at is no one coach is wrong, but any time you are completely neglecting any type of training or any um, a modality or any kind of stimulus, that's where you need to ask yourself, why am I doing a total neglect of this? Um, because again, what you're offering is just not a complete meal or a complete nourishment profile to that organism, which is that athlete during that training period. So let's dive in and give some details here because I think it's important. Uh, that's what we're after on this one. And I'll, I'll start. And people might be saying, okay, you want all these things in there. Like, how do we fit them all in? Well, I think it's... Let's, yeah, let's just do a training week breakdown. Yeah, I, I think it's important here to realize that the way I see it is that, again, everything's in there. We're emphasizing something and we're maintaining the rest, right? So, if we're maintaining something, it takes less work than if we're trying to build it, right? This was, you know, Lydiard got this right. It takes a lot of work to build something, right? Yep. So, what does this look like for a week? Well, I'll give a, a couple examples. Um, if we're looking at, let's say, a uh, base slash early season um week, right? We might have a Monday where we have some sort of aerobic type work. So some sort of threshold or fart lick or something like that, right? We'll just kind of keep it simple. Now with my middle distance athletes, instead of doing a traditional threshold style, let's go 25 minutes at threshold. A lot of times what I like to do is fart lick broken up at kind of threshold speed. So maybe some three minutes, some two minutes, some 90 seconds, some mi one minute, whatever it is broken up where we get this nice threshold effect without, you know, or this nice endurance effect without having um, the negative psychological effect for a, in a middle distance athlete of trying to spend 25 minutes at a pretty hard sustained pace. So keep that in mind. Okay. What is we got through Monday. Great. Tuesday, what's it look like? A lot of times recovery. Recovery run with probably some strides afterwards a lot of times. So strides for us, mile effort, you know, some rhythm, maybe a little bit faster, nothing crazy. Wednesday rolls around. What are we doing? Well, you know what? We're probably going to add in some pure speed development during this time because we're kind of emphasizing that. So it could be eight times eight second hill sprints. It could be, you know... 40, 50, 60 meters on the track repeated um, multiple times. How would that shift if we weren't building it? Well, then we might do six by hill sprints followed by, up by maybe a fartlek for aerobic development so that we're maintaining both of those, but doing the hill sprints first so that we can get this pure speed development in a fresh phase. So if we do pure speed Wednesday, then we could come back either Thursday or Friday, depending on how I like to structure it, with what I'd call is some rhythm stuff in, in the middle during this period. So maybe 200s starting at 5K, working down to 1500 pace. Just rhythm, 200 on, 200 off, getting some of that middle ground work without really pressing it. And then on the weekend, maybe we do a long run. Sunday, a lot of times for middle distance athletes, off. But we're trying to hit, and that's just an example, but we're trying to include multiple paces from a large variety, okay, in that training week. Within that, we'd probably have Monday and Thursday or Monday and Wednesday as some sort of lifting session as well to capitalize on some of that stuff. But that's just a very general overview of how to include again, slices and spices of this work during, let's say, a foundation phase when, again, most people think, oh, endurance, endurance, endurance. Yeah, I'll give an example um, from Dan Herrera, November 2019. So what I called his, um, what phase are we calling this? So yeah, foundation phase, phase one of his training. So this is essentially, I work in two week snapshots. Um, this is what the training was. He came back after a 20, 20 day layoff, 20 day of doing nothing, w ran and won the Navy road mile 
on October 6th, came back and started training on October 22nd. So the first couple days or three, four days, it was shakeout jogs and lifts. So, and we have three types of lifts. There's what I call a strength lift, a quick lift, and a velocity lift. How do they differ? So the strength lift is geared towards just kind of more global strength. So what that looks like is jump rope warm-up, um, squat, uh, trap bar deadlift, standing overhead press, pull-ups, bench press, and then bar barbell deadlift. And all that's about two to three sets of four to five. And the goal is to be at a, a very high heavy weight. The quick lift is a little different. It's jump rope, bench press, pull-ups, front squat, trap bar deadlift, standing overhead press, front squat again. The quick lift only has two sets of everything and three to four reps. So it's quick. It's kind of a reminder lift. Um, you go through it again, still trying to hit that higher end heavy weight, but not as much volume overall because we're only doing two sets of three to four reps. So it's this interme intermediary lift. And then the velocity lift, this is focused on moving everything at very, very fast speeds. Um, so what we do is we tone down, again, the um, overall volume of the lift. And from a velocity standpoint, we do one set of everything and we do that at two to four reps, one set, high weight, just fast. So we've all, and so the, the pattern for that is it's strength lift first, then quick lift, then velocity lift. So the higher demand to lower demand overall is how I view it. And that's how I always start off weeks. High, highly demanding work for the athlete. That's very tough. So for Herrera, volume was always a tough thing. Velocity, speed work, very easy. So he could go into that for his background, a little fatigued because when he was fatigued going into kind of more, you know, traditional endurance or strength type work, it didn't go so well. So what we do would be then, okay, Sunday would be a velocity lift, but before that he'd do what we call the Rono drill, which is essentially lactate threshold work or fartlicks on the track, um, which would be essentially two to three sets of a mile at 100 meter on at 5K pace, 100 meter float at half marathon, marathon effort. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for a mile recovery jog. So we're getting a three to four or two to three miles of volume at a quote unquote lactate threshold or tempo, but we're doing it in a more sophisticated way where he's running 5k pace. And this is less than a week from a layoff. He's starting to run 5k pace work, but we're doing it in a very disciplined way. So it's not four by a mile at 5k, but in this lactate dynamic way, which gets that tempo run um, philosophy, but maintains good foot speed or adequate foot speed instead of just saying, okay, run 20 minutes or 40 minutes at your 15K pace. Globally, he has more bouts of moving faster, but still getting the same physiological dynamic in there. So that's Sunday. Then Monday is a training run, which training run I just define as um, a very simple 30 to 45 minute run at the fastest enjoyable speed you can go. And enjoyable is relative, fastest is relative. We're not slogging through it. You know, it takes up, you know, you have like, for my athletes, we have a warm up period where you have about 10 to 15 minutes of the first run where it's just loose warm up, like you're warming up for a um, workout. And then you can kind of suss out is it worth going longer today, shorter? You know, does it turn to an oxidative recovery run where we're just doing warm up running at a very slow clip for? 30 minutes max and then call them peace out because I'm just fried? Or do, do I feel like I can I can kind of up the pace to something that's enjoyable but won't take a lot out of me but actually feel me leaving like a little bit of boost um, for the next day's work? And that's all that is on that day, just that training run on that Monday. Then Tuesday uh, is a pure speed workout, six times 150. So we start off with kind of a neuromuscular after drills and warm up and everything, uh, a neuromuscular introduction, which is three times 50 meters um, accelerations with full recovery walk back. And then Dan is three times, or Dan did 
three times 650 with full recovery. And the prescription was too fast, next to faster, next to fastest. And that was it. It was totally relative because the idea is the central nervous system warms up. He gets in a movement um, groove. He's, he's refining and minimizing movement variables and so on and so forth. So by the time that he gets to the fifth and sixth reps of the 150, he gets two good fast reps that he feels like, man, I really hit that. Um, we're not worried about time. We're just worried about him feeling like he's progressing and getting that movement variability enhancement under his belt. That's all that Tuesday was. Then on the Wednesday, it starts off with a um, shakeout jog in the morning or, or warm-up run of 20 minutes and then a training run again in the afternoon. In this training run, though, it's different. It's an elevated training run, which is 10 to 20 minutes warm-up and then two sets of five times one minute on at 10K effort, one minute off easy, two to three um, minutes easy jog in between sets. 10 to 15 minutes, cool down as he feels. And then a strength lift after that. Thursday, total rest day. Do nothing. Maybe go for a walk. That's it. Friday, an, an acidosis, what we call a short acidosis workout. So we're in the first week of training in a foundation phase, getting ready for the Olympics, which was going to be in July, August of 2020. This is November or um, the end of October, October 31st, 2019. First acidosis workout is two sets of eight times 200 at 31 to 32 with 30 seconds standing recovery between each rep. So again, running at faster speeds with a really short recovery between the intensive efforts inter um, set. In between sets, it's six to eight minutes walk, jog, recovery as needed. And the idea was for him to feel 80 to 90% of full recovery. So not full, full recovery, but almost. He only did two sets of that. That was that day. Um, and then after that workout, does that quick lift we talked about. So kind of that just intermediate refining lift. Saturday, the next day, training run, just typical training run, 30 to 45 minutes, you know, at kind of what my one of my mentors called the speed of joy, as fast as feels good. And then we just start the whole week over again, which is the exact same pattern, except the only thing we switch out or elevate uh, is that Tuesday speed workout, instead of it being pure speed, which was six times 150, it is a, what I call, quote unquote, long speed, which was four times 250. So we make the distance a little bit longer, but instead of doing six times 150, we're shorting it down to four reps. And again, two fast, one faster, one fastest with full recovery. Because the thing that we're trying to elevate with Dan, right, is his max velocity ability and we're also trying to improve his stamina at the competitive speed that he needs to be able to run at a world-class level we're starting this in end of october early november and after this period this um at the conclusion of this foundation period which lasted three weeks this introductory phase one is an 800 meter time trial so we're doing an 800 meter time trial with a very disciplined prescription. First 200 meters at 30 seconds, second 200 meters at 29 seconds, third 200 meters at 28 seconds, last 200 meters as fast as possible sprint. And then seeing with that 800 meter test where he is in ability after that heavy block of training and introductory training, that test then told me all right, what kind of variables are limiting factors? What kind of variables are progressing at um, the anticipated race of progression? Where are his strengths? Where are his weaknesses? From that feedback in that 800 meter time trial, in that disciplined manner, we were able then to shape the directionality of his training moving forward. So this is for, again, a world-class miler coming off of, you know, his best season is, I mean, and Dan raced, from what January all the way to the first week of October and with him we had to employ kind of that Bonnerchuk model where there's a lot of frequent competitions because the realities of his world in the professional environment was he doesn't have a contract 
So he only made money when he competed or rabbited. So he had to take revenue generating opportunities as, as they made themselves possible. So he had to be kind of race ready at the drop of a hat year round. And the only way I could solve that problem was to adopt this Bonnerchuk style philosophy that said, we're going to just try to cycle through several peaks throughout a year and elevate your overall ability by really um, exploiting those peaks when they happen and also not being fearless and racing when you're in kind of a quote unquote training phase, even though we know it's going to be a little bit suppressed. But overall, your ability has enhancing from, you know, from January relative to April relative, from April relative to June, June relative to August. And sure enough, it worked. Thank you for the very detailed approach there. I think that has... Oh, uh, we went deep, baby. That's the quality that we tried to deliver. All right. You know, and I think, you know, as we go in this this podcast, I think the key here is, A, knowing the ingredients you're trying to develop. What does it take? What do the event demands? What are those? And then B, it's once you understand those ingredients, is how are you going to put those into your program and then build and develop those and then maintain them when you've developed them? Like that is the simple formula, I think, or the simple thing that we as coaches have to figure out. And there's, you know, you outlined there how you used a Bondercheck approach to do that. Right, Lydiard used a different approach during a different time. A college coach is going to use a different approach than Jerry Schumacher working with pros, right? Because the timelines are different, the developmental capacities are different, the tools in the toolbox are different. Okay, a high school kid who may never run at college is going to have a different toolbox than someone who's let's say extremely talented and has a and is has a future in college and maybe beyond now that doesn't mean that you don't try to develop those tools with the kid who might not have the capacity to run at college he might be a late bloomer he might show up and do some things that surprise you he might have to compensate by developing one tool a lot to make up for something he doesn't have. But that doesn't mean you don't minimize and don't, you know, work on the the weakness, right? So I, I think that is the the gist of middle distance training is we have all these different things we need to balance. How do we do so? And it's gonna differ for the athletes you work with. Daniel Herrera's different balance is gonna be different than Mark English. Okay. Mm -hmm, 100%. Mark, (laughs) I have to like, I have to sit there and think of, okay, this guy's got a ton of raw power. How do I keep that going? And then you also got to think with Mark of how to teach him proper race tactics so he doesn't put himself in box in positions. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. So it's, 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 it's different demands, right? It's different. How are we going to solve these problems? Mark still has to develop not only his speed, but his endurance capacity, right? He still has to be able to run, you know, if he won't ever, but if he wanted to a mile or a 5K, right? Which he does some road 5Ks and stuff like that. But how do you how do you put those ingredients and order them in such a way that they're developing them over not only the short term, but also the long haul? And then and ready to use those when it's time to play. And it's even more weird and crazy during COVID times. Oh, yeah. So, well, it's, I mean, then that's the thing, right? I think you and I have always tried to advocate for a contextual, specific, integrative approach. The hard part about like Lydiard is you have advocates and loyalists who just think that is the way it should be. And the people fit the system rather than the system fitting the person. And, you know, what Steve and I are here to say and what we're trying to offer, like the High Performance West Academy and scholarship membership program and all the courses that we make is giving you exposure to a lot of different people and coaches and athletes who had a variety of problems they had to solve that were context context specific. So 
Jerry has a certain luxury with his athletes in a certain paradigm that works because of the context that he's in. You know, he famously says, oh, they move really well. I want to coach them. Oh, they don't move well. I don't want to work with them. And this person who doesn't move well well, might have just won an NCAA championship. They don't move well. Ah, it's just not going to work. Because for him, at his level and where he sits, he he doesn't think it's intelligent to work on improvements of biomechanics or technique for whatever reason. And so he's already looking for really good movers who can uh, thrive under his heavy demand, heavy volume, heavy, high speed, high moderation um, training philosophy versus myself, Steve, Danny Mackey, like other people who are in this space, Ben Rosario, uh, Terrence Mahone, we all each have different philosophies because our context is different and what we think, given also the environment we're in, you know, with like Terrence being in San Diego, uh, Ben Rosario being at 7,000 feet in Flagstaff, we then have to prioritize different things because of the type of athletes we attract and the type of athlete we're trying to prepare for a given context specifically. Ben Rosario is not coaching 800 meter milers, even though he has in the past and done a really quality job with that. He's focused with his group on marathoners and developing high level elite road race and marathon people. So it's a different in at 7,000 feet, much different context, much different solutions. And that's, I think the more exposure you have to how other coaches past, present, um, and also way in, in antiquity, solve those problems that face them, the better you can take action in your context, even during COVID times, to say, all right, how do we craft a, um, a prognosis or process to create a solution for this athlete or this team, given their limiting factors, the time frame we have to get ready, and what I think is the key uh, variables that are holding them back from outstanding success. Couldn't have, couldn't, couldn't have summed it up better. I think that, you know, the context is what we're after and the context um, helps determine how you sharpen or utilize those tools. You know, I'll always yeah, say... these podcasts are really just... So- Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I I'm just going to say I I would, you know, the most obvious example I give is for cross country season, well, BYU might be doing 10-mile progression runs to prepare. Mm-hmm. The University of Houston would die if we did a 10-mile progression run <laughs> in the summer in the heat and humidity capital of the world. So, um we yeah, well, I mean, even like, you know, at Rob Conner at UP, they used to do 10-mile progressions. That was a staple, what he called his long workout. He switched it up since, and he's focused on shorter, like, tempo runs, f- four to six miles, and then a 3-2-1 set, you know, sets of 3-2-1 fartlek, kind of 5K and down effort in a fatigue state after the tempo run. And, you know, it was just because also, too, the – um, ability of athletes he was working with when he was doing the 10 mile tempos or progressions back in the early 2000s versus the quality of athletes he's recruiting now to UP that are m- much more advanced and developed um, and more competitive than they were back then. He doesn't have to do this kind of foundational job of aerobic development, if you want to call it that, um, that he used to have to do. So it, you see even someone like Rob, who's been in the game at a high level, through 30 years has sh- has shifted his uh, paradigm and philosophies to respond. And that's what Rob does a very good job of. He shifts what he's doing to respond to the people and athletes he's working with right now. Not He's not fighting l- the last war, uh, you know, with today in today's, in today's world, meaning he's not using what won him, previous or one team's previous accolades to then apply to the current team. He's looking at the current team's dynamic and makeup and saying, what do they need to do to be competitive? Who do I have as personnel? Where are the limiting factors? You know, who can I depend on? Who do we need to elevate? And even too, what, you know, Rob does a really good job is he maps out the long-term progression and long-term dependencies of an athlete. So 
kid who comes in as a freshman, he'll have on the board, hey, look, in four years at the NCAA championship, we need you to be one of our top five guys. You're a freshman now. We're red shirts you. Don't worry about it. But he gives a really clear vision to where all this work is day in and day out for that day-by-day process is going to lead to because he tells a guy, we recruited you to be great, not tomorrow, not even next year, but down the road. And you see people like a Logan Orndorff who walk on kid, 26 minute 8K runner freshman year, who became the first sub four minute miler for those guys at UP, be able to have his heart and mind captured by that vision because it provided a clear path. And that too, as a coach, is what we have to do is provide a clear path to our athletes, even in rocky or uncertain times like we're doing with now. And what I was going to initially say is what this podcast is essentially is just a sample or a springboard to kind of wet the palate to get everyone thinking. And this is why Steve and I created the Academy was to go deeper and have a more formal context and more in-depth material to really unpack all these nuances or things we make reference to so that you get a more uh, integrated and in-depth understanding and orientation about different potential solution abilities you can employ in your environment that other coaches before us or are employing right now and that's why we believe in sharing liberally and sharing everything. That is correct. And if you want to see part of what we're sharing, head over to the High Performance West Academy of Scholarship. Check it out. Link will be in the show notes. Um, we mention it a lot because we pour a lot into it and are continuing to. A new evolution will take place over the upcoming months. So get on board now so you can check that out. And if you, know, if you say, you know what? I don't know about that. That costs money. Then... Go back, listen to our 100 plus episodes of the podcast where we share free stuff. If you're not in a position, go for it. Listen to it all. Check out all the blogs and stuff that we put out for free. Um, We do that because, you know, it's important for education standpoint. John and I were once young coaches trying to figure things out. We're still slightly older coaches still trying to figure things out. Um, and the way to do that is to read, immerse yourself in the literature, immerse yourself in thinking about these ideas instead of just copying. And if you do that, you're going to end up, you know, in a much better spot. Or reach out to Steve and or I on Twitter, like send us a direct message. Anyone can send us a direct message. And guess what? We do answer. There are people who are like, oh my God, you answered. Thank you for your perspective. That was very helpful. We do it for free because as one of my mentors, Sam Pass said, you know, I said, what do I need to do to repay you for all the time and effort, and energy and education you've given me? He goes, all you got to do is pay it forward. I said, done deal. Perfect. And until next time, hope you enjoyed. We'll be back with more in-depth content.